Good morning, everyone. We've got Fire Marshal Dan Jagger with us today. Dan, I got a text telling me I could get a CCFR t-shirt for $10 off, but I saw the numbers out of state. I take it I won't be getting a t-shirt. No, you won't. Uh, earlier this last week, we've uh, had a number of people that had that, including the fire chief, myself. I think most of the staff in the department actually um, got the same type of text, and it's it's definitely a, a bogus uh, attempt for someone to scam money. There's no reduction in any fees for t-shirts. There's no special incentives for any of that at all. So we posted on our Facebook page, and I think there were some other links to other uh, social media pages that if anyone heard that or saw that, not to reply to that at all. It's completely false. I don't even think the number looks spoof. It was just area code was out of state yeah and, you know and again that just goes to the fact that you got to pay attention to where you're getting these messages from if you don't recognize the number if you don't if you think that the uh, message is not accurate in any way either because it's misspelled or whatever just err on the side of caution and don't open it call the actual um, department number or whoever it is like in our case people were calling the fire station asking is this accurate and we were able to verify on the phone that no it wasn't so and I doubt the department would be sending text messages about that. No, we don't use that platform for any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of public notification of any sort. So we saw that the police department is getting this armored rescue vehicle. In your perspective, what value does this vehicle bring? You know, it's been an interesting concept to look at. Um, I think there's tremendous value for both both fire and police. I don't have all the details exactly how the fire department would actually use this, but um, I know that Assistant Chief Travis Mead uh, gave testimony last week at the uh, Committee of the Whole meeting, and he had some details about it because he's been selected for our department representative representative on this to work with JPD on this. And some of the things that we could use it for would be like a response for an avalanche zone or landslide area where our apparatus it just can't get through some of the terrain depending on the conditions. Uh, so any kind of a response for that. Um, there could be other things that we could use it for, such as uh, if there was some sort of a conflict issue going on around town um, and then that could be a number of different things in that category, an active shooter thing or whatever um, of course JPD gets called for it but we're also there to help assist them and we're there primarily for the medical aspect of it in case someone is injured uh, but we could also use it for helping to evacuate neighborhoods and things like that uh, I think that the plan for that type of vehicle is still in the works there's a lot more details that have been discussed over the last week or so since it was brought to light last week. And I think the public is expressing not only concerns, but maybe some other possible ideas that we can explore to use that as a, a multi-use uh, type of equipment. It, it, it would be helpful, I imagine, because you wouldn't want to take just one of the regular ambulances into a dangerous situation like you're explaining. It, it, might, it might damage the vehicle. But then you have this vehicle. Right. Yeah. So, you know, damage as far as a number of things. It, it our, our typical fire apparatus, they're just not designed like this vehicle is. They don't have the armor plating. And so, you know, there could be gunfire. There could be other uh, types of weapons used and stuff. So 
having this extra protected vehicle would be a benefit for any kind of responders, both fire and police. Very good. Now, talk to us about the process of upgrading the radio system you and police use. Right. So I think on previous shows, we we talked about this briefly, but uh, Juno Police Department has been working for over a year now on trying to find out uh, what our current system's capabilities are. Part of this, uh, there was a radio survey that was being done, and it was between fire and police primarily, but we were going through all different areas around Juno and seeing where our radio coverage really was the strongest and where it was the weakest based on the different repeaters we have. And so part of the funding that was uh, allocated recently was to help cover that cost, as well as looking at going from an analog to a digital capability for radios. Uh, There's also looking at uh, replacement of repeater sites, which is critical, and other aspects of the computer-aided dispatcher CAD system, which allows us, as far as fire, police, and, and other departments, to be dispatched to different locations. And the interoperability capabilities that we're looking at with go to digital are, uh, it's newer technology, and we have the ability to have more channels available for communication. So it's a multi-layered project that is long overdue, and we're definitely looking forward to seeing this move forward and just help overall with our response to the community's needs, no matter where it is. So with it being analog, there's limitations to that range. There are, absolutely. So with analog, you're limited on your your range, your frequencies, the um, number of channels that can be used. And so by going to digital, it's just a better technology. The the lag time, I guess you could say, for transmitting messages is greatly reduced. there's just a, a number of other technical aspects that I'm not totally you know, familiar with, but I, I do know that by th- having this improvement, it's going to be uh, a much greater benefit for everyone. So let's talk about the... We've had a few occasions on the program to talk about this. It's the mobile integrated healthcare system. And... I, I I want to understand the funding that we had recently saw the fu- the five hundred thousand towards that program. Could you could you explain that? Sure. So for those that aren't familiar with the MIH or Mobile Integrated Health, what it is it's a it's community paramedicine program, which is what it's termed as in the uh, fire service across the country. And, and what it does is it takes paramedics and sometimes EMTs, depending on the situation to go out in the community and help uh, help a population that would only have the option of calling 911 and taking an ambulance from a, a fire department to respond to them. In some cases, that's absolutely appropriate, but here in Juneau, along with other places, there's a population that doesn't need an, uh, a frontline ambulance taken out of service to do a simple transport for them. So we have this program in place that we've we've been working with for over a year now, and it takes it's more like I, I liken it to the home visits that a doctor would do. Granted, we're not physicians, nurses, or anything like that, but what we're doing is we're going to people's homes who would normally call nine one one for a transport, and we're able to do home visits and check on their health conditions at home 
rather than taking them in for an appointment like that. A community it, paramedicine of sorts. It is, absolutely. And, and that's what it does is it helps uh, relieve the burden on the fire department as far as responses go because there's other emergencies that we respond to as well. It takes a burden off of the hospital, not only at the ER, but um, the doctors that have regular appointments through the different medical facilities around Juno. And so the paramedics will go and they'll just do a, a simple check-in and say, you know, how are you doing? Maybe take some vitals like a blood pressure, see if they're breathing okay. Uh, some people are on oxygen therapy at home, so they're able to kind of look at their system and see, make sure that it's operating properly. We'll do things like um, go and pick up prescription medicines for them at pharmacies. Sometimes they need doctor appointments and they don't have a way to get there, so we can offer that service. There's just a, a multiple, um, multiple things that we can do that don't directly take away from the immediate uh, responses for fire police or the emergency department. So uh, we have a great team of paramedics and EMTs that have been doing that. Uh, Joe Mishler has been the manager for that in the CARES program, overseeing both of those programs. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of stats that we're putting together for helping with the budgeting to to show here's the cost for it, here's why it costs that, but also to show the bigger benefit not only for the the patients that are are getting the direct services, but all of the other groups around town that are being impacted by us trying to fill in a gap and provide a better health care service for the community. And so that 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 uh, funding, if the city had chose to approve that additional funding, would it just carry on the program as it currently is? I believe so. I, th- I know that we're looking at some additional staffing. We'll, we'll need some sort of administrative help. Uh, just so there's potential to grow. There is some potential, yes. That's not the um, it's not the immediate intent right now. Uh, we just want to try to be able to sustain it by providing year-round coverage, not just temporary, and also look at maybe an administrative position because there's also all of the billing aspects that come into play. And between CARES and MIH, we're looking at 18-plus employees just for those two programs. So Joe, like I said, he manages it. He needs some additional support to help him with the missions of both of those. So. Um, there's a huge potential on it. And I think that overall the community sees the need for it and the assembly and everyone, and they're starting to understand uh, through the, the data that we're pulling together that, um, you know, it's it's a definitely needed thing and it's good that we're providing it. And has it done well in achieving its goal of reducing hospital visits, would you say? I would say it has. I, I don't have the, the hard numbers on that, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're... We're seeing a reduction in the number of calls that our um, our staffed stations would be getting called out to. Uh, so you know, it, it, if we're not going to them with our resources, then we're not taking them to the ER and, and things like that. So I think overall there is a reduction, or at least there's numbers showing how it's you know it's impacting different groups. Very good. Well, we'll go ahead and go to a break just for a moment, and we'll be back. Andrew Pintiscus, our EMS officer, uh, I believe out of the 100 kits that we received earlier this spring, we've distributed out probably 40 to 50 maybe. 
some of those went up north, like we talked in the last previous shows about um, the Kenai area. Mm-hmm. But also, Andrew's been talking about it with different groups, and I know that some of the Coast Guard uh, personnel, they've um, received some of these kits as well. Uh, so that's more first responders out there that have this if needed. So um, beyond that, I don't have a lot more detail on it, but I know that we have been distributing those kits. Um, I don't believe we've had any high numbers recently of any overdose cases, but again, I haven't been able to double check on that, but I don't believe we have. And if anyone would want one of these kits, they're not publicly available yet. No, they're not. Uh, My understanding is the way it's run is it's for first responders that use it. If, um, if some people in the community have these, then we, what we'll do is we'll get some information from them to report back to the uh, overall group that distributes this for stats, and then we'll give them a replacement kit, and that's basically how it works. So, update us on the new rescue vehicles. Let's let's start with the fire truck. Where are we at on that? Uh, you're probably referring about our ladder truck. Yep. Okay. Well, that uh, you know that's been at least a year and a half, almost two year process for a lot of things. One, it's getting the the budget for it uh, because they're expensive, but also the production and manufacturing um, from Pierce in Wisconsin. That uh, should be wrapping up here at the end of the month, and sometime the first or second week of June, we should be seeing it actually here in town. Um, I imagine we're going to have a, a big community-wide uh, open house type thing where the people come by the station, check it out. It's going to be new. It's new for us, not only because it's a brand new piece of equipment, but it's a type of equipment we've never had before. It's a aerial apparatus with a 100-foot ladder, and it has it's a platform, so it's like a big bucket that hangs out the front end of the engine or the apparatus. And what it does is it gives us a working platform for two firefighters to safely work at an elevated level. And we can do rescue work with it. We can do suppression, whatever we need. But um, it's it's the latest and greatest. It's something that we def- definitely need in this town. I know that we're looking at trying to acquire another one of those, uh, so that way both paid stations, either out in the valley or downtown, would have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's our newest one. We have one or two ambulances that are down south in the refurbishment mode. And what we do is we'll take the the box part of the ambulance and that's usually made out of aluminum light metal that can get detached from the chassis the drivetrain and everything of the apparatus and we just replace the chassis put the box on it Um, there might be some painting of course that needs to be done and then it's like a brand new ambulance but at a lower cost than what a full full price ambulance would cost us so we're looking at ways of improving the apparatus keeping things as far as wear and tear to a minimum, but we're also doing it in a more, I think, fiscally responsible fashion by refurbishing rather than um, going out for a whole new, brand new ambulance and, and that whole process. Again, it's a it's savings of the, in the cost for taxpayers. We're also looking at ordering two more uh, fire engines, not the ladder trucks, but the engines themselves. The one, The newest ones that we have uh, I believe they were done in 2014. So they're starting to see some signs of age. Um, you know, they get a lot of use. And so we're trying to work on getting two more of those ordered in the next probably couple of years. 
And the additional ladder truck I was telling you about, we're trying to get that, and that'll probably be another at least two years out, I'd imagine. It's just it's a long process for having them built. Um, beyond that, I think the rest of our fleet's looking pretty well. So, hmm. so yeah, 20, 2014, what's the... What what is the signs of aging usually? Well, uh, it depends on what you know. Like with any kind of a vehicle, you'll have uh, parts that need to get replaced, normal wear and tear. If you can imagine taking these zapper, the engines, we'll say mm-hmm. they're you know fifty thousand pounds right around there, and so it's a lot of stress on the frame, uh, the suspension. Uh, everything involved with it. Plus, we've got a, an expensive water pump that gets used quite regularly for not only real incidents, but training and everything. All this stuff is um, it's expensive to keep replacing if there's issues. We also look at mileage, um, which isn't a huge factor, but with apparatus, it can be, as well as the hours put on the uh, the engines for the drivetrain themselves and also the hours for the pump. So all of those combined we look at and you know and then you have the wear and tear from the salt that we use on the roads the different chemicals that are used in the winter time all of that eats up stuff so we have to look at it and go all right what's the longevity of this piece of equipment how is it being used um can we make any differences as far as responses go and training and things like that and then you know we look at the overall age and so, I mean, our stuff is holding up pretty well, but it, it takes a toll. And the biggest thing is, is it's heavy equipment. Unlike the lighter weight vehicles you see running around on Egan, uh, 50 plus thousand pounds, that's a lot of uh, stress on a vehicle. And so we just have to look at everything and, and realize that typically the 20 year span that we look at for a, a expectancy on apparatus, you know, that may not actually fit depending on how it's being used so considering those factors considering those factors those are probably the main ones so yeah and what's the process of decommissioning one of these vehicles do you sell it off do you yeah so you know when we do replace the apparatus uh what what'll happen is if it is say it's tired and it needs to get replaced what we'll do is we'll put it in as a reserve or backup engine and so that way, if our main uh, newer apparatus break down or have some sort of an issue, we have reserve apparatus that can take their place. They're still functional for any kind of calls, but their frequency of use obviously it goes down. If they're in reserve status and then their age and everything, uh, depending on what that looks like, we'll also put it out for some sort of an auction for other departments in Southeast to use it. And which is a great opportunity because a lot of the smaller volunteer departments don't have big budgets. They don't necessarily need a brand new apparatus, but what they're looking at is something newer than what they have, which is usually 20 plus years older. So anything newer for them is a benefit. And, you know, we have a process for that where we can do, um, it's not necessarily a a bid, but if there's multiple departments, then they'll, they'll go through not only the fire chief and our mechanic, but also purchasing from CBJ and, and other groups to get things going to um, get it to other communities that need it. So, so the COVID response has changed in the city. What does this mean 
for the fire department? Well, you know what? We've really, really haven't changed a lot of what we've done for the last two years, basically. We still have to wear masks when we go on calls, um, whether it's, uh, you know, it's a mandate or not. That's been our department policy through our, our uh, medical director, uh, Dr. Peterson. And, you know, so as far as that goes, nothing's really changed. Um, I think that our concern is that with these different variants and everything going through, the transmission is obviously going to be easier, as CDC and everyone's saying. But we still go back to the same basics of masking, uh, social distancing, washing hands frequently. Uh, we use the UV light treatment in our ambulances for disinfecting the inside of the of the ambulances. We still wash our gear frequently. Um, you know, things like that. I mean, it, it really hasn't changed the way we're doing things. Uh, and we've found that it's overall been pretty effective, so. Well, Dan, after work today, I might go out to my home in the valley and have a fire. Am I allowed to do that now? <laughs> you are. Yeah, as of May 1st, uh, open burning throughout the entire borough is open, and there's no restrictions. The only thing is that you still have to go online and get an open burn permit. So it's real easy to do. Go to, I think it's juno.org, or type in a, a Google search for Juno burn permit, and it'll take you to a link. You fill out the form. It's your name, your address, and then you get a copy of the permit itself, which has a list of different rules that need to be followed. And just do your best to follow those rules. You know, uh, We get a lot of open burn complaints every year, and the only thing I could stress the most is is that probably 99% of the time we get burn complaints, the person or the group that's responsible for the burning is more upset or offended that neighbors who called and complained didn't go to them in person and say, hey, you know, I understand you're burning, but can you limit your hours or, you know, maybe change the day of doing it? They'd be more than willing to do it from our experience. And so we just asked the public that, if they can and they're comfortable with it, go to the lowest level possible and just talk directly with the person that's doing the burning and ask them, you know, if there's something that could be done. Uh, another simple thing to do as far as burn complaints go is using a, um, a leaf blower. You know, and what that does is it, it's pushing in more air into the seat of the fire, which burns it hotter so you have less smoke, but it also burns your material a lot faster. So it's a win-win. You're getting rid of your material, and you're not making your neighbors upset. Uh, that's a real easy thing to do. Huh. But uh, go ahead. And that, that burn permit, it's just for one year, right? Right. It's for the current year. It's free. There is no charge for it. Um, and at the end of the year, it expires. And then next year, you have to go through the same process again. But, um, yeah, I mean, we understand people's desire to want to burn. It, but we also want to stress that it's privilege, and with the privilege, there's responsibilities. And we just ask that people are responsible with their burning. They're aware that the smoke that they're creating might be a problem for the neighbors. Uh, the other thing is, is that sometimes people standing right at the fire, they see the smoke going up, and they don't realize that you know it's going up to a, a certain point, and then it's banking off and leveling and coming back down again. So it might look like a clean burn to them, but down the street it might be creating a haze or some sort of a problem. So, you know, every once in a while, just have someone maybe go off in the distance and check and see, 
is it really going straight up or is it banking off in other areas? And just try to be aware of um, other people's sensitivity to it. Well, it looks like I'll have to get a burn permit before I burn then. I think we can hook you up on that. (laughs) We'll talk after the show. Thank you, Dan. Sure. (laughs) And that's the program. Junior Representative Sarah Hannon will join us tomorrow. And a very special thank you to all of you listening. See you next time on Action Line.